Hello and welcome to the 31st episode of the Ocean Decade Show, the podcast dedicated to guiding you down the yellow brick road of this global initiative to transform the ocean, housed within the American Shoreline Podcast Network family. My name is Taylor Gales and I'm your host and tour guide on our adventure through the ocean decade. We have officially wrapped up World Ocean Month and I know that the Ocean Decade team is probably thrilled (laughs) about that um, because they were so busy and the Ocean Decade itself was so busy during June. Um, This always happens with everyone who works in oceans. Everyone wants to do their event, put out their paper or, you know, have have some sort of convening during June. Um, If not on World Ocean Day itself, then in World Ocean Month. Uh, So there's always a a plethora of ocean things to do. But this one in particular, I just wanted to kind of highlight a few things that um, happened on the ocean decade level in in June. Of this year. So the pre-registration and call for satellite events was opened on World Ocean Day for 2024's Ocean Decade Conference, which we uh, kind of soft launched a few episodes ago before the official announcement came out, which was exciting. And this conference is going to be taking place in Barcelona from April 10th through 12th next year. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic event. I hope to see many of you there. This will be the first Ocean Decade conference that's in person since uh, the last one took place virtually at the very start of the pandemic. So it's a really exciting opportunity. And yes, the UN Ocean Conference last year kind of ca- I counted it as kind of a de facto Ocean Decade conference because there was so much Ocean Decade uh, action, I guess one could say. But this is officially an Ocean Decade conference in Barcelona next year. So if you haven't pre-registered or seen the call for satellite events, please reach out to the IOC. Um, we want to make this, I know they want to make this a really fantastic event. And then that same day, World Ocean Day, their comms team, I know, <laughs> was very busy. Um, the Ocean Decade team also announced a wave of new transformative decade actions. So there's 47 newly endorsed actions spanning all continents which is crazy <laughs> to think about. I've still, I've recorded an episode of this podcast um, at least, you know, audio wise on every continent except Antarctica. So that's still the goal. Um, maybe when, uh, Jean-Louis Etienne, who was on a few episodes ago when he's down at the polar pod in Antarctica, maybe we can get that to happen and that can count. Um, but there's 47 newly endorsed actions spanning all continents with the aim of achieving the decade vision. And so some of the really interesting ones that I saw in the list, um, there's a newly endorsed decade collaborative center for the Southern ocean region. Again, more opportunities for me to record into Antarctica, because why would you not want more opportunities to record in Antarctica without having to do the Drake passage? Because I don't think that, um, my, my stomach could take that. I've seen videos. It doesn't seem fun. Also what's really exciting. Cause I haven't seen, I've seen some ocean decade stuff out of China. And probably a lot of this is just my own lack of awareness of all the great stuff that's happening over there. But uh, led by China's Deep Ocean Affairs Administration, there's a new decade program called Digital Deep Sea Typical Habitats. So digital depth, you know, you always have to come up with your cool acronyms. I think that's a pretty cool one. This will enhance the ability to observe, stimulate and map deep sea habitats, uh, which as we know, are vulnerable to human activities and global changes we've done um, a few episodes on the high seas here. Deep sea mining is a big topic, big issue uh, here globally. So I think this is going to be a really fascinating program. Um, and so they really hope through this program to promote a balance between deep sea conservation and sustainability. Seven of the new projects are going to fall under the umbrella of Ocean Decade programs led by IOC UNESCO. So as if, if the people at IOC aren't doing enough, they're adding more under their plate for programs that they are leading. And this is going to cover various topics such as technology development and innovation, ocean observations, data collection, and ocean literacy uh, in order to better understand, manage, and sustain ocean resources at global, regional, and national levels. There's a ton more you can go on OceanDecade.org to see the newly endorsed actions. And if you didn't get in, in time for this round, <laughs> this round that was you know just announced last month, don't worry. There's a current call for decade actions open until August 31st of this year. And uh, there's specific focuses. So if you've seen these calls in the past, you see that they're trying to be specific in what they're calling for each time. And Alison Clausen, when she's been on the show a few times, has, has talked about this. So this one that's coming up that's due in August is focused on soliciting transformative decade programs that address priority sub-themes of Ocean Decade Challenge 1, 
which is marine pollution, and then Ocean Decade Challenge 2, ecosystem restoration and management. In addition, uh, 18 of the endorsed decade programs, so those high-level programs, are soliciting new projects under this. So it's an opportunity that you don't have to build a whole giant new brand thing, brand new thing. And the decade doesn't really need to have hundreds and hundreds of programs. It needs a great core programs with some even more fantastic uh, projects underneath. So visit the Ocean Decade Network to learn more. And that was, you know, just a very poor recap of all things um, World Ocean Month. And just from really the perspective of the IOC, a ton of more things happened and couldn't even come close to covering it all. But um, there's probably a lot of great content out there um, that people had done during that month. So take a look uh, and send me anything you find that's interesting. But now to the topic of this month's podcast. Um, So for those of you who have been with us here for a while, you may remember that I uh, got into this whole Ocean Decade mess because I originated the Ocean Decade Knaus Fellowship role in 2020, started my journey with the Ocean Decade. And so really in that role was able to help the U.S. organize for what the Ocean Decade is and could and should be under the fabulous uh, tutelage of uh, Craig McLean, who was the acti- who was the uh, uh, administrator at NOAA Research at the time and is now retired and probably bored out of his mind because <laughs> he is just too good to stay uh, retired for long. And then the um, completely irreplaceable Liz Turpak, who is still there. And so Sue is still the mentor of my current guest now. Um, and then after I left the Canals role and then had been doing this podcast, um, I kind of just on a whim wanted to invite my direct successor, Teresa Keith, on the episode on, on the podcast to do an episode. And then last year, I thought, well, I've had one of the Ocean Decade fellows on. I might as well have the next one. And so Caitlin Lang was on last year, my Knaus grandchild. I'm now doing this in terms, for those of you who aren't in the U.S., it's a weird thing amongst like U.S. sororities that they call each other like they're grand, big, and they're big. So it's like this kind of lineage that emerges. And so I've really embraced that <laughs> when when describing these uh, Knaus fellows. And so this year, I have Selena Harris, who is technically taking that uh, analogy to its wits end and to my wits end is my canals great grandchild, which makes me feel extremely old. <laughs> Prior to starting her fellowship and working on the ocean decade, Selena had no experience with ocean science, which is just mind boggling and can't wait to dive into that a little bit more with her and completed her PhD in chemistry in the Midwest, studying the interactions of iron oxide minerals with model groundwater pollutants under a variety of environmental parameters. I don't even fully understand what that means. And so I'm really excited that we'll talk more about it. She's originally from the Mid-Atlantic region, which is where she's stationed now um, to work at NOAA headquarters here in Silver Spring, Maryland. Uh, and Selena's very happy to be back in the region and away from the heavy Minnesota winters, which I've never been to Minnesota, but my grandmother was born and raised in Minnesota in the time before they had indoor plumbing. So I can't even imagine how cold it was and how much you had to use the restroom in the night if you then had to go out into the cold of the snow in the middle of December in Minnesota. So Selena, thank you so much for for joining me and uh, coming on this episode of the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I gave this very brief introduction, but tell me a little bit more about who you are and what's been your path to the ocean decade. What made you choose this position? So like you mentioned, I am a chemist. Um, I guess now I'm not really a chemist, though, but my training is in chemistry, even though I'm not using that in my day to day. But I think kind of twofolded what led me here was I knew that I wanted to leave the bench after grad school. Um, so I was I was looking into kind of policy fellowships in any sort of fashion. And one of my lab mates knew about the Canals Fellowship and had mentioned it to me and was just like, how much different can ocean be from groundwater? Like, it's just water. Um. (laughs) (laughs) I really love that. Oh, gosh. Because it is all one set of water, a little different, but yeah. Yeah, it's just water and 
it has oxygen in it, which was different from what I was working in, and it's saltier, and it has a whole bunch of other parameters, of course. Wait, does groundwater not have oxygen in it? Am I this dumb? <laughs> it, varies, it varies. It um, varies. So we were modeling it as anoxic groundwater, oh. um, just because different aquifer systems, and depending on like how old they are, will have different levels of oxygenation in them. Um, but it's easier to just kind of work in a all or nothing, especially when you're working with iron oxides, because if you're, well, not even just the iron oxides, when you're working with just aqueous iron too, because it will oxidize really rapidly. So um, being in that fully anoxic environment means that you have more control over what's your aqueous iron and what's your like starting mineral iron without having to worry about what iron has precipitated into mineral because of just the oxygen that's like existing and floating around in the air around you. I love that you bring such this different perspective to the ocean. <laughs> so yes. Fellowship. How different is water? Keep going. Yeah. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to do a policy fellowship. Uh, and I, I honestly was really surprised when I got the canals fellowship because I, I had gone through like the state level review. They'd had an interview, um, and then from that interview state, they send you on to the national level. And I hadn't heard back from them. But like a big question during my interview was like, how should we sell a chemist for an ocean position? And I was like, I don't know. Um, I don't know why you're talking to me if you don't know. Uh, so work on this confidence during the year. <laughs> we know why you're, yeah, you need to have a chemist. Well, I, I didn't because I didn't know ocean. In retrospect, I'm like, oh, yeah, because chemistry is right there. But at the time I was like, I don't know. I'm. I, I, I don't know. Um, so I, I didn't I didn't know that they had sent me on to the national level. So when I'd finally gotten the email that I got accepted, it was like pacing up and down the hallway for like two hours outside of my lab being like, wait, what? What does this email say? Um, and the big part of it is like, you can't tell anyone. So I couldn't I tell know, anyone. There's that whole period where you can't. I totally forgot about that until you brought this up right now. I remember that so clearly now because... All your friends and family know that you've applied, and you can't say anything. <laughs> right. And all of my friends knew that like, I was starting to think about job hunting because I had gotten rejected from a couple other fellowships, and I hadn't heard from this one. So they're like following up with me, and they're like, how's the job hunt going? Like, How's this and that? And I'm like, don't talk to me. <laughs> very supportive friends, though. Yeah. You got you to gotta give them that. Um, it was, they were very nice, and... I think they mostly just wrote it off as like, oh, she's stressed and doesn't want to talk about it. And I was like, no, you don't understand. If you ask me too many questions, I will explode with excitement. <laughs> um, but the the reason that I kind of leaned into the Ocean Decade position was because I had a, a little bit of experience kind of at that UN level because I was a representative for the American Chemical Society for the UNFCCC COP26 in Glasgow. Um, so they take graduate student and undergraduate students as their kind of like NGO representatives as that like academic society. Um, and that was kind of my first time being exposed to just like all things high level global initiative like that. And I was like, whoa, this is wild and overwhelming in every sense of the word. But it was also kind of cool. And it was kind of like let's let's do more of this let's learn more of this so when i was looking at the different options this was one that like initially really sparked my interest and then placement happened and the stars aligned and here i am what other positions were you interested in just were there other ones that like how different did you go cuz i remember my top ones i was looking at you know obviously ocean decade i was looking at it's ironic now that i work in maritime shipping decarbonization cuz i was looking at the committee on marine transportation system but then i had a fisheries background so i was looking at fisheries so did you kind of spread yourself wide and really open yourself up to a lot of opportunities since you were new in the ocean world in a way um it's funny you mentioned cmts because they were like the day before i was like having both of those and i'm like should i swap which order like how i rank these should i switch them and i stared at it for a while before I was like, nope, trust your gut, just send it. That's so funny. You and I both had the same like top two then. That's hilarious. I, I think I leaned into the more high level ones just because I didn't I didn't really know if I'd be able to do like more detailed work with the kind of background that I was coming from. I was like, I don't know anything about a fish. 
That's um, okay. I don't. I often said that I was the worst fisheries grad student in grad school because I was a social scientist. So like, I couldn't even identify fish. But I I understand. You're you went for the like thirty thousand foot view versus the like really on the ground kind of work. Exactly, because I was like, at least there all of those kind of transferable skills that I know from student groups and from other leadership roles. I was like, I can adapt those. I didn't know fish. I didn't really have kind of that specificity that from kind of talking to other folks through those kind of preliminary Q&A type webinars where you're learning about like the placement week process. Like some people like knew what they were doing, like very niche. And I was like, I don't see how knowing iron oxides or knowing nanoparticles or like laser setups, which is all my previous work. I was like, none of that's going to be relevant to these little like lower ground level positions. Well, my very first day doing the fellowship when I was still in office, because I was in office for six weeks before COVID shut everything down. Um, Liz also had, uh, Liz Turpak, our mutual mentor, had this kind of broader portfolio on ocean stuff in, in OIR as well. And so I had to go to an omics meeting my very first day and it was like in the afternoon and the sun was coming in and i was so sleepy and i almost my first day at no almost fell asleep in a meeting because it was omics and i know that's not nanoparticles but it's all a bunch of like little particles in the ocean <laughs> that genetic material and all stuff that i knew nothing about and that was <laughs> was a treat Whenever it gets into things with DNA, my eyes glaze over too. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can finally admit that three years after leaving Noah. So <laughs> <laughs> I'd say no one will know, but they'll know now that you said it. <laughs> no, said it. But yeah. So, and I think that experience at the UNFCCC, you know, it's completely different than academic work. And knowing that you want wanted to get away from the bench and how to translate those things and how to talk to people. And that's not something that scientists are always great at. <laughs> but you have obviously had a lot of practice uh, this year, for sure, thus far. I think so. I, I feel like I'm talking to a lot of people. I don't I don't necessarily say I'd call myself like good at talking, especially like compared to you or Liz. Like there's that level of charisma and like <laughs> that ability to just kind of roll with a conversation. And, and I admire it. And that was part of why like working for Liz was so appealing. Because I'm like, I need to learn how to do that. Like that is a skill I need to acquire and I'm going to watch you until I can do it too. So I think I've told Liz this and if I haven't, then she'll find out now. But um, during our placement week, um, she gave a, went up and gave her presentation and she probably ran from someplace and was running to another place. And so she was very kind of expressive and frazzled and like it was the first time this position was happening. And so I wrote in my notes like, Liz is kind of intense, but I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what leads you through the year. And that's what keeps you going. Cause I started ocean decade stuff under the Trump administration, completely different. And then you're doing it without Craig McLean there, who was the best, biggest champion for it. So that's hard to, Nicole LaBeouf has, but it's of course in a different line office, but has really stepped up from the NOAA side to really bring that international perspective. But um, it's different. The, the office is different. Everything like, you know, this isn't, a stationary position it keeps changing which is exciting yeah i feel like of all like each of the fellows like we're technically all doing the same thing we have the same portfolio but the kind of energy and environment around it changes so much because like obviously things within NOAA change but the structure of the decade changes and like the resources we all have to work in and the type of work we have to do evolves as the decade grows so it's like always fun to talk to other decade fellows and be like, what was it like for you? And there's so few of us. Like when you think of some people, if you don't know the Knauss Fellowship, um, it's this uh, one-year marine science policy fellowship in uh, Washington, D.C. and uh, fantastic grad students uh, from all around the U.S. Um, go and work in usually a federal agency, some on, the, on Capitol Hill for a year on a variety of ocean policy and Great Lakes issues. Um, and we all come from really different backgrounds and we all do really different things. And that's why it's so exciting to keep having Ocean Decade Fellows on because there's only been four of us. The Canals Fellowship has been going on for years and years and years. So some people, some offices have had fellows for 20 years. And it's really unique, the fact that there's just 
four of us. And so that's why I love keeping up this tradition of as long as I have a podcast, I will have an episode with the current Ocean Decade Fellow. And as long as there's an Ocean Decade Fellow, um, because yeah, my ne- this goes into my next question too, about like, what's your day-to-day like? Because it's so, it's probably different if I go back and listen to Caitlin's episode from last year, it's different. If I go back and listen to Teresa's, it's different. If I go back and read my, <laughs> my scrawled notes from my year, uh, my virtual canals year, it'd be very different. So what's your day-to-day like? So I guess to start, my day-to-day is a little different from past fellows because I kind of absorbed a secondary position with my work. Um, So in addition to doing Ocean Decade stuff, I also serve as an executive secretariat for the NOAA Science Council, Um, which partially I picked up because I had a lot of free time when I was first starting because I'm coming straight from grad school and my brain did not know how to slow down. Like it was just like that panic those first like month where I was like, I'm not doing enough. Um, Cause all through grad school, like I was doing my research, but on top of that, I got paid through a teaching appointment and I had switched research groups to my PhD lab in September of 2020. And my advisor basically took me on as a, a switch student with the agreement of like, yeah, you're going to have to like hit the ground and just like run to catch up. And I was like, okay. Um, so I, I was kind of in this mindset of like, go fast, go create, like go all the way the whole time. Um, and that first week on the job was just like so calm. I thought I was doing something wrong. <laughs> Us with our overactive brains. I, why do you think I still do podcasts? 31 episodes <laughs> later. Yeah, I just can't get enough. Yeah, so my day is a little different because about half of it goes to that, which is not Ocean Decade. But on the Ocean Decade side, like there's the emailing, making sure that I'm reaching out to people who might be relevant to like current calls for actions and see if I can get on their calendars or if they can connect me to other people that they think would be relevant to talk to. And then kind of doing those follow-up briefings. So teaching people what is the decade if they don't know yet. And then what does that mean to be engaged with the decade and what the endorsement process looks like and connecting with other partners. So like the U.S. National Committee, there's the ECOP node that recently launched, the DCT teams in Atlanta and Canada that I get to work with. Um, I have a counterpart in the... the decade coordination. Yeah, collaboration yes. centers. Collaboration, thank you. I just said it earlier, but yeah, working on those acronyms. Yeah, so <laughs> the decade collaboration centers... And I think it's Decade Coordination Office, the DCOs, and they yes. both have very similar functions, but different acronyms. And that's always very hard for me to explain because they do similar things, but they're not the same. And then you said you work with uh, someone else too? Yeah. So in the International Activities Office of NOAA Research, there's someone who basically has the international decade portfolio as part of her work. Um, and she came on this year roughly at like the same time as me. So we kind of ingested all things decade together. Um, And she was actually part of the Youth Advisory Council through Heirs to Our Oceans in their first cohort. So she helped me get back in touch with them so that I can kind of pick that back into the portfolio as well, Um, which has been really cool. (laughs) I love seeing that Heirs to Our Ocean and that kind of youth side is still in it. I had done the kind of very initial outreach to them during my year. And so it's been great to see I've run into them at events all over the world. And just bringing that uh, youth angle is so important. Yeah. And they they released their toolkit recently so that other countries can also try and set up that similar structure to what they have, um, which is really cool. And I'm excited to get to work with them this coming year with their, I guess, fourth, fourth cohort. Yeah, I'm not sure the timing of it, but it's it's a lot. And that toolkit, I forgot that they were putting that out. That's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for anyone listening from around the world, uh, if you want to kind of replicate the the youth element to how Air Store Ocean in the U.S. primarily is doing uh, Ocean Decade stuff, um, we can find and drop that link. That's really exciting. But that that's a lot of what my day is. It's meeting with other people. It's talking to them. It's seeing what I can do for them, what they need from us, and really maintaining momentum is the big thing. Maintaining momentum is huge because we're at this weird point of the decade, really. You know, we're a little over three years, two, two years, two and a half, three. I just, I started working on it in 2020. I know it launched in 2021, but like we're getting to 
you know, a point where it could get not forgotten, but put on the back burner, you know, like I feel like when something gets halfway over and then it's like, oh, okay, let's look back and then drive forward. But it's this like kind of doldrums time of the ocean decade. And so it's really past the the excitement and the glamour, I guess, of the beginning. Um, my job was much easier than yours. I got to say, look at all this exciting stuff that's coming and <laughs> got to kind of see the first bits come, but not, you know, where where the rubber hits the road and this is what it means. And this is how we're actually going to try to measure and achieve these challenges. Like how do we determine as a global society when we've addressed marine pollution enough? Like <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Like it just is such a big task. Yeah. And I think also as like science evolves and you learn more about like how, yeah, the pollution patches are big problems. Like the garbage patches are huge issues, but they're also now supporting ecosystems. And it's like, oh, how do we address that? Yeah, your problem created something maybe good, but is it good? And yeah, that kind of weighing is, and working in, you know, multi-cultural, multi-sectoral working groups and bringing these things forward. Like um, you have, you seem to have a lot more concrete relationships and partnerships than was there in the past. You have these kind of set people that you work with um, versus mine was a bit more of a, a shotgun approach. So it's, it's, that makes me feel good that there's like, okay, there's an established group of people who you work with and understand and talk to so that it's not just Selena and Liz against the world. <laughs> yes. And I would say that's, that's a blessing. Like that network and those people make it so much easier. <laughs> yep. That's how you get anything done in in the ocean space and in anything else. Um, but this the kind of science role that you're in as well, like how have you been finding the balance of that with with ocean decade work? So part of what I like about the science council side is it's it's very regular. so it's it's very much like we have um, monthly meetings there just to kind of know what's happening in terms of NOAA science across the line offices. Um, and I like it because it gives me that cross line office perspective that I'm kind of lacking with Ocean Decade being housed in NOAA research. I don't get to really see what the other line offices are doing um, or know who to talk to in them always. Um, so that's what I liked about the ability to extend into the science council side to get that kind of cross line office. So the different kind of sectors of how the different work in NOAA is divided in a way. Um, and that side, it's, it's regular work. It's you prepare for the meetings, you put together briefing packages for the chair and vice chair. Um, it's almost more predictable, even though it still has that level of it's kind of thrown together sometimes at the last minute as this is a new top priority. Um, so it's almost a little bit higher level than Ocean Decade sometimes, but having kind of two very different ways that my brain has to think is nice because if I get too overwhelmed with, say, decade work, it's like, okay, we're going to turn that side of the brain off. We're completely shifting gears now and I can do the same thing vice versa. So it kind of helps me in a way also maintain my momentum of like not burning out. <laughs> and that is super important, especially as we're shifting into, you know, more so back into full-time work and back in the office, full-time work, meaning, you know, back in the office and hybrid life and travel. And I, you know, had to get up early and stay up late for some calls during my, my year. But the only, the only trip I went on was to San Diego. Like I didn't go anywhere around the world for, for the decade, um, during my time. And it, it's a different kind of, of draining. Um, what does your, what have you been able to do? What meetings have you attended, you know, domestically or, or otherwise, uh, have you done thus far? And then what's on the horizon? Um, so, so far I was able to attend the ocean vision summit, down in Atlanta in April, um, which was really nice for connecting with people from the Decade Collaborative Center down there, um, since they were the host, sort of. Um, Ocean Visions was is the funder of the Decade Collaborative Center, and they were the ones hosting it. Um, but otherwise, I haven't done any travel yet. My, my secret actually has emailed me, and they're like, are you planning on using your professional development funds and going somewhere? And I'm like, 
yeah, I just, I just need to figure out what I'm going to do. Um, cause I, I think a handful of other fellows have used their money to like present their graduate research or they're going to conferences that kind of have those connections. And I, I'm definitely in that bit of a weird space right now where it's like partially ocean world, but my background's still chemistry and like merging how those two things will mesh together for what does the next step look like? Like, how do I bring in policy? How do I bring in that science? And what do I need professionally developed (laughs) to make that happen effectively? And I'm like, oh gosh, I don't know. (laughs) It's hard. The beauty of those funds, um, and for those of you who don't know, there's professional development funds that come along with Knaus that the fellow is pretty much free to use as they want in a lot of ways. Um, There's some restrictions, but, uh, you know, you can think about, you know, oh, am I learning how to be as charismatic charismatic as Liz or should I go take like a science communication improv class? Is there something I've wanted to know about X, Y, and Z? Is there a one month course in New Zealand that I can take? You know, like that um, this is the only time If you don't do, I'm going to come back and check on you on this. If you don't do this, um, this is like the one time in your career that you have kind of free money almost to spend or like not free, but not as many strings attached. So we'll make you a three point plan and we'll get you there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) From the the NOAA decade perspective and or the US kind of what's been happening this year thus far? What's been the main focus? Is it that keeping up momentum? Is it getting more stakeholders? Is it getting things more focused? Um, What have you seen? I think for Liz and I, it's definitely finding kind of who will champion us from that more domestic side. Um, Like you mentioned, Nicola Buff has stepped up really wonderfully in that international side, but I don't don't really work on that front kind of at all. Um, So figuring out who we can kind of lean on domestically is something where we're still kind of working to identify because uh, there's a lot happening right now. Um, and a lot of people are kind of at capacity. They're at their bandwidth. So trying to convince them to take on more things that aren't necessarily like pressing matters right now. Like they're not huge funding opportunities. They're not, this needs to be out the door in six months. It's, it's kind of hard to be like, Hey, there's this thing that we've been leaning into Noah's, a really big contributor to, and we kind of just need to mo- maintain momentum. Like that's, that's a harder sell to like help us lift this up. Um, but I will say I was able to work with a couple other fellows um, that are within the canals fellowship in different placements. And we worked together to kind of do a synergies visualization exercise of some of the ocean climate action plan priorities with the decade challenges uh, to show Well, that's awesome because it's the very first time the administration has done an ocean climate action plan. And so connecting it to that's, that's awesome. Yeah. So we sat down and basically um, they were much more versed in the ocean climate action plan side. So they broke it down into like the different priorities and where those priorities like align with like what the agencies need to do. And then sitting down and saying like, okay, that's what you're saying needs to happen. And how does that connect to actions we've already put forward and saying we're doing so like we're already doing that work in some capacity um, and kind of laying out where those connections happen and then making a visualization to just kind of put in a PowerPoint and be like, we're already doing both of these things as we move into implementation with ocean climate action. Like, let's just keep decade in mind. Like they do align. So if we're going to do work on that front, let's figure out ways we can tie it to the work that we do with the decade or vice versa. Um which I think is just really important. There's a lot happening in the ocean realm. So not being duplicative and like making sure that we're kind of thinking of it all at once is important. (laughs) There's limited funding too, right? That we spend so, so much less on the ocean than we spend on other sectors. And so really using OCAP, the Ocean Climate Action Plan in the decade to kind of reinforce each other in the messaging and to help align on what needs done and who's doing it and how we do it is crucial. Sometimes I would think of my decade position as almost like an air traffic controller (laughs) of like, or um, one of the, uh, you know, like phone line operators that you'd move something and connect it to somewhere else on this giant board. And, and seeing the whole board can be hard because there's 
so much going on. I was very lucky that <laughs> there was no programs or projects or activities when I launched. Like there was ideas of these, but to try to keep track of all of that and to then try to think creatively and draw these connections, it's it's not easy, especially earlier in your career and especially for someone who isn't an ocean person by background. Yeah. And when you only have like a hundred or 200 word abstract for some of the actions, it's like, okay, well, what does that actually mean? Like, can I say that it's doing this? Like, are these the same thing? Um, so it was definitely like sitting down and kind of diving in and being like, you're saying you're doing this. Let me see what I can find about you on the internet. Like, do you have any publications out? Are you actually related to this? Can I say that these are aligned to one another? Um, which was a little bit tricky when some of the, just even the terms, I'm like, what, what does that mean? So has that been the biggest challenge you've seen? What's the biggest challenge you've seen in, this year in, in organizing the decade? Is it your kind of different background or is it just the sheer number of things? Is it lack of momentum? Is it, you know, what have you found from your very unique perspective, I think be, has been a giant challenge? Um, I think for me, it's really knowing the best way to support people. Like, Learning is not super hard. Like I mentioned, when I switched research groups in grad school, it was under the, the guise of like, yeah, there's this really steep learning curve and you're just going to sprint. Um, so when I came to the fellowship, I was kind of like, okay, let's do it again. What's one more time? Um, but with the decade, something that I've never really had to do is support other people, like support other people doing their research without being able to like be hands on in it. Um, so with a lot of the American action owners, like I talk to them and I hear that they're struggling with bandwidth for like reporting or for with funding for doing the work. And I can't do anything to lessen that burden for them. Like I can listen, I can hear them. I can take that information and basically say like, yeah, we have a trend. Everyone's saying the same thing. Um, but it's, it's really difficult to, hear and like know all of this is happening and know so many people are facing those same kind of hurdles but I physically can't like make a solution for it um I guess I'm just kind of that like over planning mentality type where I'm like you have a problem and I will brute force a solution any way I need to um so it's both the challenge of like I can't do anything and that mental challenge of like yeah it's okay that you can't do anything you just have to Think of creative ways to support them and and listen to them, let them vent their frustrations from time to time, and then spin the wheels to see what you can do moving forward and set up, maybe not this year for them to get significant assistance, but in future years, how can you help them and have the framework set in place so that they get that help later? Yeah, it's like the old adage of planting seeds that you'll never get to see, you know, that you're building things that aren't going to come to fruition or aren't going to happen for now, when you're in this position, when an next person's in this position, you know, it's, um, it's hard, you know, like we just, what got the global treaty on the high seas passed and that'd been in the process for like, what, 20 something years. So it's, um, it's hard. I think can now this, this hits a lot of people who are used to very action oriented moving, you're doing science. And so it's like a lot of people come from a science background versus there's some lawyers or some, um, kind of professional degrees too in there, but you know, you're doing research and you're doing things, but it's only for a set number of years. And it's kind of within this broader scope, but you have kind of your, your lane that you're in, um, and your timeframes, but Canals can just throw all of that out the window. Um, and you're, and you're out of your comfort zone, which is what, um, it's trying, I think what it mostly teaches you is how to maybe try to get a little bit more comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. And, I think especially like with the ocean decade position, I knew I knew I would be. I knew it would have those kind of challenges. And that was part of what I really liked about it in theory. I was like, it's gonna force me to get over that. And I need to get over that if I wanna like keep growing. So I, I knew what I was getting into in that regard. <laughs> well, good for you. That's um I think there's a there's different kinds of people who go into canal. Some who like you had said earlier, know exactly what they want and want to, you know, get a position in X to move to Y to eventually end up in Z. Um, but then there's people like us who try something totally new and then 
try something else new. And <laughs> it's it's all about learning and taking on opportunities that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise. Like what's something you've done in the past, you know, week or so that you never thought you would ever do before? Is there anything like that? Uh, I mean, maybe not in like the week or so, but just with like being involved with the ECOP network, um, I'm getting to just be involved with that coordination. And yeah, tell me a bit more about the U.S. ECOP node. So the early career ocean professionals, we featured that kind of a good amount on the podcast, but the U.S. is, uh, is new. Yeah. Um, so Caitlin, last year's fellow, she had left, left, left that on kind of like a handover memo for me of like, this is something for you to be aware of. And I'd reached out and asked about it and they were like, yeah, come to our meeting. And I came, went to one of their meetings in like my first month and that kind of was like, okay, now you're part of the steering committee. And I was like, I am. Um, it's and- amazing how those things come up. Based <laughs> on, yep. Yeah. And then they launched and kind of just kept spiraling or like not spiraling, but like snowballing of like, now, you know, you have with your fellowship some time. So do you want to help us with coordination and help put together the meeting agenda and like, um, help we had our all hands meeting recently so I got to help coordinate like the agenda for that and they're like do you want to talk and I'm like no no I don't want to talk at this um just because I I don't feel qualified still in that realm I'm like you all did all the work and I am now just stepping in at this like last stage and somehow part of the team and I don't know how um but I I have been enjoying kind of that background working with them and kind of supporting side of making sure the agenda is ready uh making sure that we have kind of the next steps planned. Um, And that's something that I I don't think I necessarily expected getting to do. Um, And I'd say that side and working with the ECOP is where I get a little bit more in touch with some of the international components from talking to some of the other ECOP nodes. Um, So we've talked with Canada a lot of just like, you know, we have similar, I guess, in a way, maybe not struggles, but we have that similar perspective of our countries are very big yeah. and we have two coasts that have very different issues um, and how, how you kind of handle having people so spread out like that. Um, but like nothing in my position description would have led me to think that I'd get to work with folks from other countries in that capacity. So that's the further you get in your career, I think the more you realize that position descriptions are just like a nice idea that someone <laughs> came up with and got through HR somehow that um, or sent to to the National Sea Grant Office and then they, you know, they gave it to you all that um, I've never, even my decade position had a position that aligned with what exactly I do every day. Um there might be jobs like that. My husband is an engineer. I bet his job more directly aligns to what <laughs> what is said. But um, that's in you know it can be very overwhelming because you don't know necessarily exactly what you're doing every day, and it can be different and change, and you have to be flexible. But it's also never boring. <laughs> no, and I love that. <laughs> Yeah, if you came on here and said the Ocean Decade position was boring, I think we would have had to just stop the podcast <laughs> then. I would be like, you're not taking full advantage of this. You need to. <laughs> yeah, I, I've definitely, I've gotten to the point now where I no longer am sitting there like, what do I do with my time? Um, between everything, I'm at the point now where I'm like, well, I could do this. I could do that. So sometimes I almost have the opposite issue now of like, I have so many things I could do. And I'm like, pick one, pick one and do it right now. <laughs> yeah, that was... The hard thing as well, I remember speaking with both um, Teresa and Caitlin about like, you know, what their portfolios look like and how, you know, and you can, you have a good amount of freedom to kind of make some of it your own and pick something that is kind of like yours to make your signature on it. There's like core things that you have to do with the decade position, but you have the ability to, you know, like I did a good amount of stuff because I was a social scientist by training, like focused on some social science aspects, which was fun and different. Um, And then, you know, you with your very technical background and uh, Teresa had, you know, land experience and Caitlin had completely different, you know, Midwest, had a lot of Midwesterners, I guess, in the Ocean (laughs) Decade position. I wonder what, (laughs) what kind of correlation there is there, but um, 
But going back, so this is the question I ask everyone. Speaking of the ocean decade overall, according to you, what would be a successful ocean decade from kind of whatever perspective you want? So I guess I'd have to approach it from that kind of analytical scientific mindset background of, for me, it's, it's successful if we can meet the goals, if we can meet like, this is what we said we're going to do. Here are our targets. Here are our indicators. If we can meet those goals. Because in a way, from like I think of it, the decade is meant to support Sustainable Development Goal 14. Um, and when the decade started, we'd already missed some of those targets. And thinking now, like, how to make this successful means we make up, we make up that loss. We make progress. We meet those goals. And we basically have... We have something that we can hold up and say, we achieved this. We said this, we achieved it. And I think, for me at least, that's that's more concrete than, like, how do we say we have an inspiring ocean? Like, those ones are really hard for me to, like, wrap my head around. See, that's so funny because that's my favorite one. I, I like it, but I'm like, what, <laughs> what does that mean? Because I, I feel like for some people, the ocean could already be inspiring like yeah maybe it's it's not as nice as it should be but for some people who maybe don't see that it it probably already is for them um like for me growing up I didn't know anything about the ocean I was like that thing's terrifying but it's so cool um (laughs) so I guess it's it's hard for me to kind of wrap my head around those more abstract concepts to say I achieved this non-tangential thing whereas when it's a very clear like this is my goal this is my my i said i'm gonna do x y and z and i can discreetly check those boxes. i'm like that's success um but that that's definitely an analytical chemist mindset of this plus or minus what error <laughs> well with this mindset you know existing you know you have almost, you know, like dual personalities or you have kind of different drivers in you. So do you want to continue down this kind of international policy path or you, you're not interested in going back to the, to the bench, to academia? What, what kind of things are you interested in? So I definitely don't want to go back to the bench. Um, I, I enjoyed my time there while I was there, but kind of the running joke is that I'm a little bit too clumsy for that long term. Um, like I mentioned, I was working in an anaerobic environment, which basically meant I was in a glove box or a glove bag, which um, for for a lack of really lack of a better description, if you've ever seen like a intensive unit care for like newborns, like a NICU, and they have those little baby incubators, it's, it's very similar to that. You have those giant gloves on your arms and basically any fine motor skills you have are just out the window. Um, so I'm a little bit clumsy, but when I was working in that environment, I was extremely clumsy. Uh, and that kind of just iterated to me, like I, I'm too, too clumsy to do bench work. And I also don't necessarily just want to be a professor and not have any hands-on side except for mentorship and like only be writing grants. That doesn't sound exciting either. So, um, I'd like to be able to do something that's kind of this analysis, with policy, with science coming together, I would like to still be able to work at that international kind of level. Um, I like the aspect of me that gets to work on that domestic side as well, but I think especially with international initiatives like Ocean Decade, it's really hard to box yourself into only the domestic side because so much of it happens at that extra layer that sometimes it feels like I'm disconnected from it as a whole, even though I know I'm not. Um, but I, I like being a generalist. I, I like that when it comes to science, when it comes to my work. So I'd, I'd like to be able to keep both of those aspects. But in terms of what my explicit job title or job description would be, I, I don't know what that'll look like. I think whatever it'll be, it'll hopefully be a little bit scary when it starts, kind of like Ocean Decade was. Like, I don't want something that'll be too comfortable. That's for sure. <laughs> Well, there you go. Anyone listening who is hiring or will be hiring soon <laughs> that um, we have your perfect candidate um, right here. Uh, and every fellow has gotten a job. Every Ocean Decade fellow has gotten a job afterwards. So we have a 100% success rate. So that's really exciting. Um, where can the audience go to learn more about the U.S.'s efforts, ECOPS, 
you, <laughs> you know, uh, where can, where can I point people to, um, to keep conversation going? So the national academies, I know that's something that I think everyone's mentioned at the end, but they host our national decade committee. Um, and they have some workshops that they'll be planning over the next couple calendar years. So not even just like this year, but next year and beyond. Um, they released a cross-cutting themes report last year. Um, and they had basically found two foundational themes, four topical themes that kind of spread across U.S. actions in the ocean decade realm. Um, and they're going to be putting together workshops on those themes over the next couple years. So if people want to get involved with that, it would be a good way to kind of provide input and have that voice in the future of what U.S. ocean science can turn out to be from those, those workshops. Um, from the U.S. ECOP side, you can go to ecopdecade.org forward slash united dash states. Um, there's a like Google form at the bottom of that site, and it should give a Slack link afterwards because all of our work that we're doing on that ECOP front is coordinated through our Slack channel. So if people want to get involved in that, they can go through that website to that Google form to get that link to join that Slack channel, which is a little bit roundabout, but um it, it helps us then get a little bit of kind of demographic information so we understand who members of the node are so that we can help them best. Um, and I guess me, I am much better with things like email uh, than social media, but I do have a LinkedIn, so people are welcome to look me up on LinkedIn. There we go. Hopefully your, your searches go way up uh, in the next two weeks as someone who, yeah, is capable and has diverse background and is eminently hireable here starting <laughs> soon <laughs> fingers crossed i have i have no worries about you so selena thank you so much for for coming on continuing the tradition um i also you know it's not lost on me that we've all been badass women in this position <laughs> and continue to support each other which i think is really important in the ocean science and just ocean world and just work world you know in general so thank you so much for keeping up the good work at NOAA um this is not an easy time to be working on the ocean decade I think it's but it's a more important time even than when I was working on it so appreciate your humor and candor and uh catching us up on all the things happening absolutely and thanks for laying a great foundation for me to work off of Oh, we're like a pyramid, a cheer pyramid, you know, it's the only sort of cheering <laughs> I ever would do. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening and we will catch up with you next month. Bye-bye.